CHAPTER III OF THE PRINCESS AND THE PLOUGHMAN This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE PRINCESS AND THE PLOUGHMAN by Florence Morse Kingsley Chapter 3 If the truth must be told, Miss Vivian had been gradually finding out that her friendship with Mary Adams had grown into something very like an actual embarrassment. It had commenced like an ivy climbing up a wall, delicate, slight, ready to wither and die at an unfriendly touch, reaching up timid tendrils, frail as mist, yet fastening and clinging, blindly, tenaciously, almost suffocatingly. By almost imperceptible degrees, she had found herself isolated, hemmed in, held unyieldingly fast by the unswerving devotion of Mary. It was very sweet, no doubt, to have won the whole-hearted adoration of so exquisite and guileless a creature. But for her part, Felice Vivian was sanely aware of the unreality. To herself, she called it plainly, absurdity of the relation. She recognised the fact that the whole fabric of this chilly maiden love was fashioned out of unsubstantial dream-stuff, as lovely but every whit as evanescent as the frost-flowers of a winter morning etched upon a pane of clear glass. She was herself already conscious of warm desires and ambitions, wholly without the jealous clasp of Mary's strong white arms. Reasoning in a healthy, girlish fashion from cause to effect, Miss Vivian set deliberately about supplanting herself in Mary's heart. To be really in love, she argued, one must be in love with a man. In pursuance of her deep designs for Mary's ultimate well-being, she invited her for a long stay at her father's country place, and here she guilefully caused various eligible men to appear in due succession and upon each, in turn, she conscientiously strove to impress the superlative attractions of her guest. This altruistic endeavour was foredoomed to complete failure. Mary had never looked more beautiful, yet in her absolute aloofness and tranquil unconsciousness of her charm, she made no more impression upon the hearts of the men than an exquisite child. 
They agreed with cheerful unanimity that Miss Adams was a star, then straightway fell in love with their hostess, who was merely an adorable human being. After a third ignominious failure of the sort, Miss Vivian unflinchingly resorted to severer measures. Do you know, honey, I am feeling wretchedly unhappy about you, she began, with a solemnity which roused Mary to tender alarms. Unhappy about me? Oh, Felice, what have I done? entreated Mary. Was it because, did you think, dearest, that I talked too much to that Mr. Calthorpe who was here last week? You know, you were always leaving us together, and I tried to be polite to him for your sake. Oh, honey, how stu- That is, I wanted you to talk to him. I wanted you to like him. Can't you see what a dreadful mistake you are making? Your twenty-third birthday comes next year, and unless you marry somebody before then, you will lose your Aunt Lydia's money, and that will mean losing me too. She added the last words with deliberate emphasis. Must I lose you? whispered Mary. Oh, Felice, why? Miss Vivian steeled herself against the appealing beauty of the petitioner's eyes. I am thinking only of what is best for you, Mary, she said crisply. I have felt for a long time that I am really in your way, and I don't mean to be so selfish any longer. She paused to look at Mary's imploring face, then added with calculating cruelty, I am very fond of you, Mary, and I always shall be. But it is nonsense to suppose that we shall always live together. We couldn't, you see. But the college, Felice, pleaded Mary, surely you haven't forgotten all of our plans. You know you promised to stay with me always, always, Felice. And we have arranged the courses of study, and how the girls are to wear gowns of pink and white and yellow and blue, instead of plain black. You can't have forgotten. Miss Vivian shrugged her slim shoulders impatiently. It was very amusing to talk about, she admitted. But as a matter of fact, you must remember, my dear, that we could do nothing of the sort without a lot of money, and that you are determined not to have. I have thought of it all, over and over again, persisted poor Mary, winking back her tears. I am really not so foolish as you seem to think, Felice. 
even if the money goes to a board of trustees instead of to me i see no reason why we may not carry out our plans i wrote to my guardian and asked him if he would arrange for you to be president of the college and for me to be dean and what did mr chantry say in reply inquired miss vivian arching her brows with a pitying smile he is very sarcastic and unpleasant as usual sighed mary still i haven't given up hope we shall have to wait for a long time perhaps but i shall not mind if you won't darling this is his letter my dear mary i am sorry to see that in your case the so-called higher education does not appear to have developed in the least your sense of relativity ordinarily called common sense your scheme is a very pretty one and quite what i should have expected from you but unfortunately the only way you can be sure of doing as you wish is to comply with the conditions of your aunt lydia adams will if you care to consider my advice you will accept jerome who is still in the market and doubtless available as for the presidency of that hypothetical college while you would undoubtedly be able to wield considerable influence in the selection of its official head that influence must be brought to bear upon the proper persons at the proper time and place i have the honour madam to remain very respectfully yours isaac chantry would you consider jerome if he should offer himself again inquired miss vivian after a discreet pause you know that i would not said mary she returned the letter to its envelope her white hands trembling a little then she fixed her clear eyes upon her friend are you tired of me felice she asked do you want me to go away these two questions quite exactly expressed what miss vivian was thinking at that minute she was tired of mary and she wished heartily that she would go away somewhere anywhere with her embarrassing devotion and her childish impossible plans but she did what ninety-nine women out of a hundred would have done in like circumstances as she looked into mary's lovely beseeching eyes all the tenderness and pity of a nature which was after all hard only at the core after the highly respectable pattern of a peach or a plum welled over in murmured words and gentle caresses she called mary her dear old honeypot 
her sweetest love, her dearest, dearest of darlings. She assured her, unblushingly, that she should be very, very unhappy, actually heartbroken indeed, if parted from her Mary, and ended by offering to do her hair in a new way, all of which soothed poor Mary into a lovely glow of happiness and gratitude, in which she appeared more than ever like a big, beautiful child. That afternoon, Mary went out by herself to think, she told Felice gravely, and the latter accepted her transient release with a little shrug of mingled gratitude and pity. The place which Mary chose as a trysting place with her confused thoughts could hardly have been more beautiful. But neither purple seas nor the rich variety of woodland and meadow spread out under a sky of loveliest azure held any answer to the puzzling questions which appeared to demand immediate solution. In her own peculiarly slow and illogical way, Mary had arrived at one or two tardy conclusions. She must either marry, she told herself, or give up her plans for a college in Hawaii. Her aunt Lydia's fortune did not matter, except as it linked itself with Felice. Linked with Felice, the despised legacy took on an appearance of supreme importance. She set herself to consider the hated condition attached to the bequest with a deliberation and seriousness which she had not yet brought to it. It had been indistinctly impressed upon her mind that a wife should love her husband. How this phenomenon was even remotely possible she could scarcely imagine. Men, as they had hitherto appeared to her abstracted eyes, were ugly creatures, overgrown, uncouth, awkward. Their deep voices grated upon her ear. Their bold eyes roused her to vague alarms and vaguer indignations. She shivered in the warm summer air as Jerome Chantry's full-fed, middle-aged, complacent visage rose before her mental vision. He appeared to bend gloatingly over her. He was about to touch her cheek with his lips. She sprang to her feet with a little scream of terror and hatred. Afar off in the valley at her feet, a man clad in dull blues was at work among the young corn. Mary's unhappy thoughts fluttered to this distant figure quite unawares and hovered about it uncertainly. After a while, 
she walked slowly down the hill. What she was thinking as she went, she could not possibly have explained to herself or to anyone. Her large eyes were fastened upon the blue-shirted figure. She moved steadily toward it. Down in the valley, the blue-shirted man was working busily among the springing ranks of young corn. The green blades were as yet quite small and slender, and about their roots crept various wild plants, bearing a profusion of tiny common flowers, yellow and white and pink. The man was dislodging these gay vagrants with a light cut and thrust of his sharp hoe. Now and again he stooped to pull one from its chosen foothold next to the growing corn. He appeared determined to spare none of them, yet a curious regret clouded his keen eyes as he struck hither and yon at the tender things, the dull clink of his hoe against the loose stones making a subdued accompaniment to his thoughts, which ran musically in a single narrow channel. Where her delicate feet had touched the earth, green herbage flowering sprang, he repeated. He could not, for the life of him, recall the second line. There was both love and longing in it, he knew, pursuing someone as she had pursued the flying pages of her manuscript. Green herbage flowering sprang, he again repeated to himself with a tolerant smile at his own folly, and stooped to pull a fragrant pink clover, upon which a wandering bee had settled. The man fixed his blue eyes upon it thoughtfully, the remembered vision of the slender young figure in its rose-coloured gown, linking itself curiously with the flower and its eager bee. No one save a poet could possibly have thought the thoughts the blue-shirted man was thinking while Mary was walking slowly toward him across the fields, not knowing whither she was going, nor yet why she went. No one save a gentleman in the primal, unspoiled meaning of the word, could have watched her approach with prophetic eyes which seemed to see beyond the present into the long vistas of past and future. End of chapter 3 Recording by David Granville Young